Good morning, everybody. It's Jack Graham and John Peterson. And, uh, you know, if you're all watching this on YouTube, again, this is on video and on audio, on regular podcast. Finally, after after quite a long time, we have got, um, and, and I'm, I'm not being gratuitous art, but we have got my, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, to say my favorite photographer, you know, Art Wolf is with us today, folks. And I, along with John, do some photo workshops. And I don't think there's one, John, that you have not heard me say. Everybody should take a workshop at least once with Art Wolf. There's Thank nobody, I, there's nobody, and not Art, I'm not making this up. This is from the heart. There's nobody I know. There's a lot of people could shoot wildlife really well and landscape really well and travel and people and, but nobody I know can do all these things at the level that you do it. Right. You know, and, 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 uh, there's a few things I want to get into about that and, and we'll leave that for a minute. But anyhow, Art Wolf is with us today. I don't think Art needs any introduction. Um, and if you don't know who Art Wolf is, shame you, on you. You shame on you. You better. <laughs> no. Well, thank you, thank you for being here and taking some time. Um, it's my Art, pleasure. Art's got a, a new book out. We're going to talk about, and um, we're going to just touch on a few ideas that um, have to do with um, storytelling, maybe, and and creativity and yeah. that kind of yeah. thing, because that's that's what that's kind of where our mindset is and where, where Art's mindset's been since I've known him. I first met Art in the Olympic Peninsula, and it's got to be probably maybe 97, 98 in that area. You were the star speaker with the Great American Photography Weekend a group that was founded by my dear friend Bill Fortney. In fact, I have a picture of you. I have to find it. Um, kneeling down, helping somebody. And, you know, I was a newbie back then, and I was blown away that Art Wolf is not shooting images and is working with this person. And, and I, I, it, it just, it, my respect for Art, and I, again, and I know it sounds like I'm just being ultra crazy here, but I, there's nobody I have in this business more respect for than Art Wolf. And it's such an honor to have him here. Yeah. Uh, and it's an honor for me to be here, quite honestly, Jack. So thank you. Anyhow, John, why don't well, you- Art, let's, let's dive into your new book. I was fortunate enough to see you in Portland when you came through and gave your talk about your new book. But why don't you, for those, that, for those folks that don't know about it, why don't you give us an introduction? All right. It's a book on international wildlife, and it's in all the biomes you can imagine, from coral reefs to deserts, all the polar regions. My idea was twofold. A, I hadn't done a book on international wildlife. Uh, I did one with a French publisher years and years ago. But more importantly, I if you turn on the news, it's all negative news, whether it's COVID, it's politics, it's climate change, it's the economy. 
everybody's getting overwhelmed with negativity. And I wanted to remind people that, yes, the earth is warming and we're entering a phase of robust storms and uncertainty, but there's also great stories out there that are positive that should lift somebody's spirits. For instance, in the book, we talk about how the mountain gorillas and the tigers of India are growing by 10% in numbers each year. Wow. That there's more whales in the ocean than there has been since the end of the whaling season in the mid-50s, 1950s, I should say. And that is positive news that one would not necessarily hear if you're turning on the news trying to keep up with the daily events. Mm -hmm. So, Greg, and you, I, have, you enlisted Gregory Green to write some of the essays. What, and I've known Greg for a long, long time. Yeah, he does a fantastic job, I think, describing the, the different zones of the world from temperate to alpine and given a lot of information. I mean, he, he knows so much about each one of these different uh, climate zones. Yeah, you know, I met Greg 30... Two years ago, he was a biologist down in Oregon, and I was photographing owls for a book on North American owls, and that started a long friendship. And when it came time to find a writer for this book, I thought maybe Greg, as a biologist, could address the subjects in the book. I thought it might be a little more pedestrian than dry, but he made it much more engaging and interesting. And that the text of the book, I think, is a perfect text for the concept of the book. So he did a great job. He's currently in Thailand with my long-term assistant, Gavril Jakan, and they were just up in Hokkaido, and now oh. they're heading down to uh, Thailand for some tropical animals, and then Gav and Greg returned to Seattle in a couple of weeks. Hokkaido is a great place to be this time of year. It is. I love it. It is. It's, it, in fact, it's funny. With your book, the text, I think, is so important. It, it, it makes the, it, not, the book in itself is amazing, but the text, it's really good to have that because, like, Michael Cannon just brought out a new book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like 30, 40 photographs. And in the back, there's text about each photograph. And it really made it, it, it brought home the message on what, what was going on. And it's, and, and, and um, Gregory did a great job. Oh, he did a fantastic I, job. I, I was, I was rereading the book uh, last night again and continue to pull out interesting facts out of, out of what Greg wrote and, um, Art, let me ask you. So, so you know, the book is broken up into different sections. So, you know, um, temperate rainforest, alpine, deserts. It's this may be like uh, naming a favorite child, but did you have a favorite section of that book? No. You know, <laughs> whatever I dive deep into is my favorite until I go on to the next, and. That's the truth. You know, people always are asking, what's your favorite location, your favorite yeah. um, photo? And I just completely don't have one. You know, it's whatever I've just done until that kind of the, the, the fun and the uh, engagement is over and I'm moving on to the next one. The answer is to that is the two favorite locations is the northern hemisphere 
in the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the answer. You know, one of the things about your books, and we were talking before we started this podcast, I have to tell everybody, I've moved eight times in the last 22 years. And I've moved probably 200, over 200 pounds of Art Wolf books eight <laughs> times in 22 years. In fact, you may remember this. Um, I can't remember which one. It was one or two books back. We got a new little yellow lab, little puppy. Yep. And all the books are laying on the floor, and he decided that the Art Wolf book would be the book to chew the corner of. And I called Libby, and she was not stuff to send me a new book. But, you know, I, 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 this book... And again, everybody says this is the best book that Art's ever done. And, and I, I, there's two things. Each book that Art does, does, I think, get better and better. You know, the photography is pretty much the same. It's great. But the printing on this book is unbelievable. It is. It is unbelievable. You know, that's why I've stuck with this publisher. He has the same aesthetic that I do. He loves books. And he'll go to the nth degree to make the book as good as he possibly can. And it's always a war with him over picking photos for this or that because he's so invested in making a book as great as it can be. And in fact, what makes a good book is really a team that has their say in it from the designers to the editors to the publisher. And then there's the photographer. And so we it's almost like... Uh, a bartering system, but I think the end result then is a better book. And sometimes they know more than the photographers do. Well, they think they do. They, they have a different they. perspective. How about that? They think they do. Yeah. I used to laugh back, you know, when the stock business was was a viable entity. Most of these photo editors, they were really when it came to photography, they were horrible. I, it was it was it was a fight, and God, it was. And luckily, if you have a great editor, man, you're you're there. But one of the things I think that makes this book is one of the things that makes Art Wolf Art Wolf. Um, you can, and it's a funny thing. I bet you do the same thing, Art. When you teach a workshop, I rarely, when I'm we're doing image reviews, I hear so many people say, "Boy, you have to have a great subject." What's the subject? Subject is important, but you have to tell a story. It's the story and that comes from the subject. And one of the things I, Mark does is tell stories. He tells stories like nobody else. Every image is a story. Thank you. Thank you. It's a story. Talk a little bit about that if you could. Well, you know, I, I the way I put it is a subject with great light and atmospheric conditions and the right angle of view, all those matter. And to give you an example, I've done a lot of books on North American wildlife. Uh, I have done books on international wildlife now that I think about it. Migrations was a book on international wildlife, but it was based on the work of M.C. Escher, this Dutch artist who was brilliant at creating um, patterns. So Migrations was could have been called wallpaper for that matter and probably would have been less controversial. Vanishing yeah. Act was camouflage in nature. The living wild was a wide angle view of animals in their habitat. Rhythms from the wild was long impressionist 
images of blurred motion. So each book really had often the same animals, but shot in a different way. And that keeps it engaging and interesting to me. And with Wild Lives, it's more straight on inspiring images of all the Earth's great mega animals. There's a lot of little critters in there too, but I really wanted to have a broad brush on capturing images that inspire people or create that sense of awe and remind them they're out there right now. That not everything is going downhill in a handbasket, that there's animals that are thriving. And to give you an example, there's more uh, mountain lions in North America than there has been in 200 years. They're adapting and becoming habituated to increased human presence in the forest. And so consequently, they're breeding more successfully because they just hide and breed very close to some major cities, especially in the West. Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles has mountain lions very, very close to the core cities. Yeah, we just had down here in Portland, we just had another mountain lion sighting close by, and, and you hear about that more and more and more. So what I'm seeing reinforces exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I, so, I think it's pretty cool to think that there's these top predators living very close to where you're living. Yeah. I, I think that's a healthy sign. Yeah. yeah. There's more um, bald eagles. You know, when we, what I, I think it was in the 80s when DDT was a uh, band. We never saw uh, bald eagles in yeah. Seattle as I, as I was growing up. And now they're actually in most Seattle parks with nests and the brood that they're raising are being you know, very used to humans. And so consequently, those offsprings are actually going into other parts. So it's given a, a fighting chance, nature is pretty resilient. There's a, uh, a, a, it's not a condor. There's a, and it's not a bald eagle. There's some kind of one of these raptors living in Central Park. It, it, oh, it's a red tail hot. You know, and, and it's been photographed. It's quite amazing. Yeah, you know, um, again, and there's a lot of rats in <laughs> New York City, and yeah. they're primarily a mouser. They don't take birds. So, you know, there's enough so field the mice and maybe even squirrels and other things. And, yeah, they're nesting on a building right across the street from Central Park. It's amazing. That, so when when you do a book, am I correct that you're already – looking ahead to another book? Yeah, I have four under contract. Wow. My wow. next book, I think, is called Fire and Ice. And I've spent a lot of time on exploding volcanoes around the world. You ought to be over in Grendevik, a little town outside of the airport in Iceland and, is, is, uh, is, is going. And so I just like that concept of beauty. Yeah. So um, then the next book is called Act of Faith, which looks at all the world's, most of the world's big religions from Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of that. But what will make that book really interesting is it's got voodoo and shamanism and animism as well. So I'm covering as much as I can 
how people are drawn towards belief systems like that. And mm -hmm. I personally am an evolutionist. I mean, it's pretty evident that we evolved out of the earth, but you know, people have their faith and I want to capture them lost in their belief systems rather than a book just of synagogues and mosques and cathedrals. But see, this is what I was saying. You've got the ability to do this and you've done it already in your books about people. Look at the image in back of us on the wall there. And the, uh, you've got that ability to be able to shoot, you know, a, a, a gorilla or, or a tiger or go probably into some of these fairly remote places that you've been and you will go to 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 deal with people. It's an amazing thing that you could do that. You know, I attribute that interest to back in the day when I was in college, I became a fine art uh, painter, but also art educator and historian. So I draw upon the breadth of what I studied, and that often serves me well when it comes up with considering a subject or a concept. But but I think also to shoot it well, I, I don't know if you would agree or disagree, Art, that to shoot a, a, a genre really well, you have to be invested in it, very interested in it, in order to get that connection with your subjects. Totally agree. Okay. And, you know, there is the candid shots, but when I'm taking portraits, I engage people. You know, I disarm them. I smile. I often put my camera in their hands to kind of break down that they're being studied with somebody with a box in their hand. So I learned that early on when I was, you know, Gabrielle and I basically opened up Ethiopia and the Omo River. We went there probably 28 years ago and they really were at um, uh, Carol Beckwith and Angela Fisher got there before us and it was that, the work that they shot that informed us so we went there and it was a different time and a different era and after that you know Joe Van Oss and um, East African ornithological tours they both have really fine businesses of running tours and they just saw what I had done and they went there. And so I think uh, early on when you meet people that have not really been overly photographed or even photographed at all, you have to kind of approach them in a very gentle and engaging way and disarming way. And as I say, I put my camera in their hands, taught them how to take pictures, and then I turned the camera towards them and they were fairly confident and relaxed at that point. So I think body language and approach is critical when you're getting into somebody's space and hoping for an engaging portrait. And now you can turn the camera around and show them. That's true. The image. Back then you could not. And in fact, it's interesting. People often asked early on, are you taking Polaroids to share? And I would say it's a great concept, but in fact, it creates chaos. Because if you have a village of 200 people and you can only take you know, 30 Polaroids, then you've got a bunch of angry people that want those photos themselves. So it's best not to walk down that path as far as I'm concerned. Speaking of angry people, 
do you yeah. ever get do you ever get in a in a situation where you, you're you you're you're not safe or you're concerned or i mean is there any any stories that would not with humans, you know. I've, uh, I'm not a war correspondent, so I'm not going to walk the Iraq-Iran border anytime soon. Um, you know, my mom taught me to ride a bus uh, at the age of seven and take a bus to downtown Seattle and transfer to another bus up onto Capitol Hill here in Seattle, and it was like a seven-hour or seven-mile bus ride at seven. Today, my mom would have been arrested for child neglect. But yeah. in fact, what she did was instill a sense of confidence. And uh, I've taken that to heart as I've traveled the world. I've been in the back alleys of major cities photographing abstract art where people were saying, oh, you're going to get killed. And it's about confidence and looking people straight in the eye and not being in a state of fear, which is often when people that have uh, ulterior motives might move in. And if they sense a tentative, weak person, they could take advantage of you one way or the other. But if you look people straight in the eye and walk with self-assuredness, the people back off, basically. Well, even kind of flipping that to the to the animal kingdom, though, or I was looking through the book last night, and uh, there was a couple of wide-angle shots of crocodiles underwater. And I just kind of looked at that and went, oof, I don't know how he got that. Yeah, you know, uh, I was somewhat assured that those saltwater crocodiles, they're not saltwater, they're American crocodiles. They can be 9, 10, even 12 foot long. And in Africa, they would be your worst nightmare, the Nile crocodiles. But for some kind of reason, the American crocodile, which really there's a few in South Florida, but most of them are down the west or the east coast of the Baja Peninsula. Uh, geez, I'm really losing it. The east coast of the Yucatan all the way into Belize and a point south. Um, the story on those is that there's fishermen huts on stilts on the border of Belize and uh, Mexico. And fishermen will go out there, catch their day's uh, catch, sometimes cook their own, their own fish and uh, throw hearts out into the shallow waters. And over time, then the crocodiles have associated humans with handouts. And so that is yet another reason I was able to get in the water uh, in very shallow water and sit there until a big crocodile would come my way and bounce its nose off the dome port of my underwater housing. And I kept on looking up at these fishermen and they would give me the thumbs up and I go, <laughs> I think that means I'm okay still. But it it does look like your worst nightmare. Yeah. I, I, bet, I bet traveling just the traveling and the airplanes and all the other stuff, it, it, it's probably no less dangerous than being in some of the locations that you are in. It. It's what you make it. I grew up right outside of New York City as a kid. And, you know, at nine years old, I was taking the subway to my dentist on West 68th Street. And I think our generation were far less controlled. You know, my mom would say, 
dinner's at seven. Be Figure there or yeah. lose out. Figure and out. I had no idea where I would be all day long. This is in the summer or on weekends. And in fact, I had a group of uh, kids that I was the leader of. And I would always say, okay, on Saturday morning, let's uh, take the seven o'clock ferry over the peninsula. And we'd be 20 miles away on our bicycles. Parents had no idea where we were, what we were doing. Uh, <laughs> but we are also responsible for our, our own selves. And today's kids, I, I, you know, they're overscheduled. They've got a phone, so they've got that, ro uh, you know, they're always monitored. And I don't know, it just is a different era. People would say, oh, there's a lot more danger. Well, you see that in the schools with the school shooting, but on the streets, I don't know if it's any more dangerous than when we're growing up. We just hear about it. You know, if some kid is kidnapped in Florida, it's on our news in Seattle. So it's just, it, it condenses and makes everything a little more immediate to us. And therefore parents are freaked out if their kid is some somewhere out of touch. Right. So you've been doing this, this, you've been traveling like crazy as long as I've known, or well, how, how do you stay motivated? I mean, what? Well, I, here's how I stay motivated. I, I work on books. I mean, I'm old fashioned. Yes, I teach workshops and guide tours across the world. But the books are what I'm after. And often where I guide tours, those photos that I will shoot will feed a book. And so um, Wild Lives, for the most part, is shot in the last five years. But I can draw, I'll go back into even the slide files and scan an image if I wanted. And in fact, in that book, Wild Lives, in fact, I'm gonna pick it up just to show people how big it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's a workout every time you pick it up. Yeah, it's ten pounds. It's it's a big book. There's almost five hundred photos in the book, and uh, I think you can pick it up at Amazon for what ninety five or less, probably less. Yeah, I think about ninety five. Any rate, if you want to inscribe, come to our website. The idea is there are photos that are my favorites from a long time ago, and I just I I don't believe in redoing and redoing and redoing photos into each new book. You know, there's there's books by colleagues of mine where you've seen most of the photos repackaged in a different title. Right. I always want to surprise and entertain and inspire people. And so there are a few people, uh, people, there are a few photos that you would recognize, but for the most part, people haven't seen these. So the, are, bear on, the bear on the cover of that book, I bet you, you photographed that bear numerous times because I, I, I won't, I don't, I'm, and I'm not the bear whisperer here, but I recognize that bear. We, we, we share our guide up there in Iliyama, and you get to know these bears year after year after year. It's quite That's absolutely true. And that bear I photographed as a spring cub. In fact, that bear cub, first year out, I had pulled a bunch of grass from the riverbank and made a bed so I could lay low and get a different perspective. And then a mother showed up, showed up with three cubs across the river. She came across the river. I got up and kind of moved away to yield her space. And the cubs went straight for my grass and laid down. Hmm. 
So that baby bear, I've photographed each year of its life until it had cubs of its own. And that bear has brought her cubs straight up to my group while we're eating lunch on the edge of the river. And everybody's like madly packing up. And I just said, hey, don't get excited. Just sit there quietly with your lunch. The bears are not going to eat your lunch. They're going to eat salmon. That's what they want. And she left the uh, cubs with us from about 12 feet away. And she disappeared up the river a couple hundred yards. They're extremely intelligent animals and they understand that humans are likely to scare away boar bears, especially when there's numbers of us. And so it's the safest place she could leave her cubs as close to humans while she's out fishing. They really are smart animals. You know, the one thing, we go up there and... I don't want to sound like the old guy, but, you know, I remember picking up outdoor photographer years and years ago in the film days. And Len Rue would go up there with Kodachrome 64 and knock it out of the park. And you'd see that bear standing in the river. And that was the shot. I don't think you could publish that shot anymore. The technology now has driven the demand for dramatic bear yeah our standards and expectations have changed no. over the years and yeah, and our yeah. clients are we take people up there and man i they're all getting great photographs and we are constantly reminding them that we're so fortunate to be living in this period where we can do this yeah. you know it's funny guys that uh, along those same lines the people of our age and experience are thrilled with what the cameras are doing. And yet, right. if you're a young buck that has entered the field maybe in the last 10 years, you're kind of pissing and moaning that this camera isn't quite doing this or that. <laughs> We're thrilled with what they're doing, oh gosh, and yet yeah. they are so uh, expectant of better from the camera, which is getting better every year, but I'm thrilled. You know, um, I started shooting in the late 70s with ISO 25 film. Right. The animal had to be dead to get in focus. Right. And thinking of Katmai, I also went up with a high school friend in the late 70s, and we walked up the uh, Brooks River to the falls. There was no trail, no platform. Right. We're under the falls. You really yeah. did have a different perspective when that you're standing. It wasn't that long ago they built all those bridges and that stuff and you know now you get out there on that platform i'm i'm waiting you could i'm waiting for them to put a, a basketball floor in front of us and watch it i mean it's it's crazy it's, so, you know i think for it's a great thing though for most people that go up to brooks camp and look at bears you know there's probably 500 to a thousand people a day during the height of the salmon run and they're experiencing bears for the first time and safely, and they're happy, they're happy. So I'm not there to judge that. We take people there for the first day to show the uh, falls and the bears. Then we go back to where we go, and we won't name the river because there could be a flash mob there next year. Mm -hmm. right. But it's, it's showing one aspect of bear viewing and then there's the intimacy of walking creeks and being surrounded by bears which is 
what I love to show and have people experience. And it's especially true when there's people that have read grizzly bear accounts of maulings and they're really tentative. And then by the second day, they're much more relaxed. Third day, they are totally chilled. And this is as good a place as any to wrap up episode one with Art Wolf on We Talk Photo. Stay tuned for episode two coming soon. Thank you.